The financial dads are not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, tax or other advice in or by virtue of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast with Paul Fagan and Paul Becker. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hey, Paul, how you doing? Doing very well, thank you, Paul. And how are you today? Uh, doing fantastic. Um, interesting week. Uh, I don't know if I talked about this on the show. Um, one sidebar. So my lawn has been really awful for a very long time. When I first moved in, my lawn, and you know, once again, this is this is suburb suburb problems, right? People who live in the city, they don't have to worry about this. But my lawn was full of weeds and all kinds of bugs, and it was crazy. And long story short, um, I went from using one of those big commercial kind of um, um, services. Didn't like, I didn't think they produced the results. They used to come on the same day that my, that the people that cut my lawns would come. So they'd kind of ruin it. And so I got rid of them and I tried doing it myself, like walking around the backyard with the spreader, with the fertilizer. That didn't work either. I'm just not good at doing that. You really, I think there's sort of an art to kind of go in and making those tracks and making the loops and not burning out certain sections by over fertilizing. Well, anyway, uh, last year, early last year, I found a uh, a small business that specializes in in doing this fertilizer, and I got to tell you, they've been phenomenal. It's been like a year later, and my lawn looks completely different <laughs> than than um, than what it did before. So, my advice to anybody out there who's having lawn problems: um, don't go with the big guys. Um, at least that's from my point of view. Uh, don't try to do it yourself. And try to find somebody who's local that will meet with you, walk you through what they're doing, do the soil tests, and kind of just really methodically work with you to get your lawn back into shape. So um, big shout out to them. I'm not going to – I don't need to plug them. That's not what we do here. But, uh, Paul, that was my that was my week. So I, I, I felt compelled to talk about that. Um, how was your week? Uh, it, it was good. I'm just surprised you're actually spending money on something like that. But that's uh, that's 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 a separate topic. Why right? would that? Uh, why would that be? Well, because we're 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 careful with how we do it, right? With that, with with our spending. So yeah, I, I think I it comes you to down be doing to it yourself. I mean, just one. I think it comes down to surrendering. Right. Sometimes it takes a long time to learn a lesson around stuff like that. Right. So yeah. there are certain things where. Um, I wouldn't, I'm going to use the extreme example. Um, you know, if I were on trial for murder, I wouldn't try to defend myself and do it myself. I guess the same thing comes to, um, fertilizing my lawn. Right. So I don't want to, I want to do it myself. I want to let the you experts do it. I surrendered no, to great. doing it. So. so, so I have an interesting story financially related here. Um, as you know, I was talking about doing a porch on the side of the house and such, and finally got a contractor to come back, talk to me, uh, he said something at the end of the conversation, which is really relevant. So say the house is worth, uh, I don't know, say fifty five hundred $500,000, say the house is worth that, right, for a number. And this extension is going to cost, or the, this working is, say, about thirty five grand to do. And he's like, like, so let me know what you want to do. I'll send you a formal quote over the weekend. And he's like, what are you going to do? Keep the money in your bank account? Well, how's it helping you there? So, so there's a lot to unpack in that, right? Because like, okay, well, if you consider inflation, any money in a bank account in theory is almost losing money right now because your your dollar is worth less, and the home values are still increasing. So, is that a better move? I just thought it was interesting and thought I'd share that one. Yeah, he knows how to sell. <laughs> yeah, he, That's does, great. he definitely knows how to sell. Absolutely, he knows how to sell. But, so he that, knows how to sell, but I could see that interesting viewpoint. So very cool. Um, well, today's podcast is with Henry Das. We're going to talk to him about his debut book, FQ, Financial Intelligence. Uh, it is the culmination of his six decades of financial knowledge and experience. But first, let's talk about some news we saw this past week. The, the news story we picked this week, Paul, um, I had gotten in full disclosure from my wife. She sends me these links from time to time, and she's a, uh, a strong supporter of the show. Thanks, Shell. Um, and it's the Washington Post um, did this story. Your money trouble could be rooted in trauma. 
And I, and I think for me, when I read the story, um, it really did resonate. I, I absolutely believe that my money habits were built and based completely out of fear of not having money. Um, and I could probably do five installments of episodes on this from a financial dad's perspective and go deep into the couch. And you can interview me, Paul, on why that is. But I'm not going to do that right now. But I, it did resonate with me, the story. And I think it's worth the, we, the read. Uh, Paul, what was your take on this story? Uh, to me, um, I think it's spot on. And I think it's one of those things that is so glaringly obvious that we don't even see it sometimes. You know, like, yeah, everything we do growing up impacts us in so many ways in how we do everything. Making change is what's hard, right? Recognizing it, making change. Not saying that you have to change depending on your habits, but this article is clear, like, right? You, you said it, you're, you're how you grew up and that situation really dictates how you are financially. So it's uh, very powerful and it probably ties to uh, Henry's book later. So we'll, yeah. we'll get to that soon, yeah. right? Yeah, we'll leave it to, yes. And I think with that, it's a good segue, Paul. Um, we'd like to now welcome to the podcast, Henry Doss. Henry is a serial entrepreneur, business coach, screenwriter, and self-described ordinary guy and now a personal finance coach. Uh, born in Brooklyn at the tail end of the Eisenhower years, uh, he has lived his entire life in and around in New York City. Um, he has lived his life in and around uh, money as well, from cutting lawns as a kid to managing stock portfolios as an adult and everything in between. Um, his debut book, FQ, Financial Intelligence, is the culmination of his six decades of financial knowledge and experience. Um, Henry, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is great. And, and Henry, we usually kick off with guests um, the, the big question. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey, how you got to be where you are today. Well, you hit, you hit some of the uh, some of the grace notes of it. Um, yeah, I grew up in suburbia. Uh, I I cut lawns for a living. You guys are talking about lawn care, which is a riot. Because now I live in rural Connecticut and I have over an acre of lawn. And, you know, I went on next door and I hired a guy to do it. You know, a, a man has to know their limitations. And though, even though I can push a lawnmower and a spreader, hire a pro, right? I mean, it, there's an opportunity cost there. So the time that you will, you might be spending doing that, you could be doing something else. It could be something money-making or, or you could go play golf, whatever it is. Leave it to somebody who lives and breathes and eats lawn care. And you're, you're, you're already seeing the results, right? It went from being a cow pasture to being something nice. Worse than a cow so. pasture. Absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I started my first business in 91. So that's over 30 years ago. I have, I've had several business partners. I've had a whole bunch of different businesses in different spaces, and for the last 10 years, I've been coaching both. I started by coaching entrepreneurs, so people who were trying to level up their businesses. Um, and then I wrote this FQ book uh, and started doing financial coaching. So I, I teach people how to manage and grow their money. Yeah, no, that's great. And I was looking at your background, and, and there's so many, you know, growing up around here, Paul and I are in the same kind of boat, right? We grew up in and around New York City. Went to mm -hmm. school relatively local. Um, you know, I, I noticed in your, and this is something we can maybe talk about later. You do all this great volunteer work with Habitat for Humanity. And you were in the AV business, which Paul and I were in technology yep. as well. You're in the technology business. You're in the real estate business. And, and I love the fact that your book is this culmination of all these varied experiences to kind of get you to where you are today. And I think with that, that's my next question is that we would love to hear more about your book, Financial Intelligence SQ, FQ. Can you give us a little more insight for our listeners as to what the book is all about? So, you know, it was one of those bucket list things or, you know, a Jim Collins BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal, write a book. Um, I, I, I call it a, a bit of a money memoir because I, I share a lot of anecdotes and a lot of stories um, <clears throat> in and around money uh, from growing up. But it was the genesis is I was at a conference in Bangkok uh, with a whole bunch of my clients, about 300 people, digital nomads, location independent businesses. Um, 
And on the Saturday, they have these mastermind groups. So I was at a table with a bunch of other coaches and we were talking about, you know, what is, what's sort of an unfulfilled um, a dream of yours. And so I mentioned writing a course about money and, you know, they kind of looked at me and everybody's like half my age. And they said, you know, you might want to get on that before you die. <laughs> um, so I didn't say it in that many words, but that's how I heard it. And so I did, and I wrote it as a course. So it's an 18 module course. I tested it with a dozen people. So I tested all this material and then as I was about to launch, a couple of folks said, hey, this you should make this a book. And I had never written a book before, but it's like, yeah, I'd love to have a book out there. But then you have to realize that, that once it's a book, it's out there for posterity. So it took me about a year to turn it into a book between rewrites and copy editors and proofreaders. And, you know, there's 250 infographics. Well, I just dragged them off the Internet. I've got to make them legal. Hmm. Not only do I have to make them legal, um, I had to hire a guy off a of, off a of fiber to to turn them into vectors because my my guy who was laying it out in InDesign said these aren't, aren't going to print very well, um, so that all has to be fixed. So you know I went down this entire rabbit hole, um, and I was worried that a book is is kind of eating my own seed corn, right? If I give it away in a book, why is somebody going to want to take the course from me? But people said. No, if they like the book, they'll want to learn it from the master. And that's really, that's pretty much been true. It really is the the lead magnet. Um, But anyways, the the approach I took was kind of cradle to grave. Uh, I'm also a screenwriter, so I've written 11 screenplays. So I followed the three, kind of followed the three act structure. Because really everything is the story and stories sell. So I started with the nuts and bolts for the first act, and then I went through, okay, now you've got some money. Now you know how much money you have. you got a balance sheet. you got an income statement. Let's figure out what you're going to do with it and how you're going to grow it. And then for the third act, I talked about all of the various pitfalls. Uh, I do a whole chapter. I call it Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, which is all about the scams that are out there, people trying to take your money. And there's a zillion of them. And I don't know if you want to talk about the weird things like NFTs and crypto and stuff like that. I shouldn't no, lump them no. into scams, but <laughs> no, it, it we is, all have strong opinions. It is uh, funny, Henry, just as a sidebar, we just did that episode last week. So we oh, had a crypto right. blockchain uh, expert on the show. Um, and, and I think, uh, shameless plug, right? Um, sure. he, he, he was super technical. But he also had very good moments of clarity where he really explained it in layman's terms what these components were with the analogies to banking or the analogies mm-hmm. to, you know, uh, wallets and, 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 and key rings. And, and, and if you listen to it, I don't want to spoil it, but it might be worth a cool listen to get a different perspective on, on it. But we would love to hear more about these gypsy scams and thieves uh, <laughs> you know, topic. That's intriguing. I love that title of that chapter. Yeah, that's an old share song um, uh, for those who are maybe on the younger side. Um, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's such an important component of growing your money is avoiding all those pitfalls, all those bear traps. And we talked, you know, you talked about it earlier where you're talking about your lawn. It's like you should invest in, in, in what you know. It's like one of the biggest takeaways that I got from from growing up around money and the very like the very first book that I read um, really seriously read, which is called One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch, who's the legendary fund manager from Magellan. And he says that, you know, invest in what you see. Right. Um, You don't have to be an expert, but look, you're not an expert on lawn. So you hire a pro to do it you may find that you become expert at lawns just kind of vicariously. And then maybe you can invest in that genre. The thing about things like crypto and NFT is no matter how many times people explain it to me, I'm imprinted as an almost 63 year old guy on, on some real nuts and bolts feet on the street investment type metrics. Well, this is defying a lot of those rules and therefore, I don't understand it. And mm. if I don't understand it, I can't really invest in it. And I'm not going to get 
caught up in FOMO. I'm not going to believe the hype of the Winklevi and all these, these, you know, tech trillionaires or whatever, right? For every one of those, there are probably a hundred thousand people who've lost their nest egg trying to ride their coattails, right? Yeah. It's especially, you know, the fear of missing out, as you said, is, is huge. And when you look at what's happened to some of these instruments, if you want to call them instruments, right? These these new things, uh, it's been so volatile. It's hurt so many people. And, but yet others have clearly made money on it. So, so, so hearing about the gypsies avoiding the scams and everything, I want to maybe take a step back in time. Sort of what advice would you give your younger self? Well, the interesting thing that, that, uh, cause I've been asked that question before on other, on other podcasts, um, it's almost going to seem counterintuitive after what I just said, but I probably should have taken more risk when I was younger um, hmm. because you have the, the benefit of time. Time is your greatest asset. I do a, I do a little riff in the book about time. I call it the hundred hour week, right? So unlike the four hour work week, right? Which people have gravitated to, including my, you know, my three children, uh, the hundred hour week is very simple. There's 168 hours in a week, right? So when you when you discount sleep and eat and personal hygiene and basically all the mandatory perfunctory things you must do as a human being, it rounds out to a nice even 100 hours, right? So then ask yourself, how am I going to allocate that 100 hours? And the reason that I that I came up with this theory was many years ago, I read an article that said that the average American watches 35 hours of TV a week. They say, actually, millennials watch more. And I'm doing the math in my head and I'm saying, sorry, let me correct that. I'm doing the arithmetic in my head. I had a podcast host who corrected me. It's not math. It's arithmetic. (laughs) Uh, You work 40 hours a week. Let's say you commute an hour each way. So now you're up to 50 hours and now you spend 35 hours watching TV. That leaves you 15 hours to do everything else that you have to do. Think about it. Right. I just did this exercise with one of my coaching clients, a time management exercise. And he's like, I don't really know. He gives me the results and he goes, I don't really know what the point of this whole exercise was. And we did it. I did a Google sheet, shared Google sheet. And he had listed 132 hours of things that he needed to do in a week. And I said, you know, you, you, you missed you missed the upshot here. Where are you getting 132 hours to do the stuff that you have to do in a week? You're going to sleep three hours a night? So something has to give. Now, round that back to money. And people have asked me, how much time should I spend on my money in a week? And you know what I tell them? Four hours. You should spend two hours looking backwards and two hours looking forwards. When you first start doing it, it might take you 10 hours, right? Because you're just unaccustomed to it and it's going to be slow. But as you start building that muscle, that's 4% of your discretionary time. I think that's that's fine. But you've got to be cognizant and you have to be mindful that this has to be done. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to blow it off this week. It's like, no, you can't. Because you're going to have to manage money pretty much from the day you're born. Well, let's say till the, maybe the day you get your first job until the day you die. You're never going to get a break unless you win the lottery. And even if you win the lottery, now you got an even bigger problem. And now you got a giant pile of money and you got to pay taxes and you got to do all that stuff. So it, it's nonstop. So, so I guess the upshot is build the process, build a strategic plan, come up with some tactics that you like, and then build a repeatable process. You'd be amazed at how difficult that is for people. Yeah, I was going to. You won't be amazed. I was going to say, uh, Henry, that you you hit upon something. I don't think we've really dug into in the podcast to this level, and and this is one of those podcasts I'm going to listen back to and and rewind this section quite a bit. Right, this whole thing around time management. Right, the and and I was going to save it for my summary recap, but this whole hundred hours a week uh, and then thirty five hour TV is brilliant. I think most Americans um, um, or most people might fall into that trap. I do have friends that, um, and now that I look at it, the ones that are probably the most successful, if you ask them uh, what they've watched lately on Netflix, they can't tell you because they don't, mm-hmm. 
right? They just don't do that, right? So that's an interesting concept. My my next question that I have is, um, how do you get people to build that muscle of of repetitiveness to to break those habits and get to a point where you know they're they're really sincere about leveraging those 100 hours and they're they're working towards that goal because I could see people in in theory um, loving that concept, but in practice they're scratching their head saying, "How do I get there? Do you have any recommendations on techniques on how to get there to kind of break the cycle and and leverage your hours most effectively? Well, the the glib answer is to say very slowly is how is how we get there. Right. I, I coach people on a, on a monthly basis. I'm, I'm not, um, I'm not really selling my course anymore. I've kind of morphed that into a monthly engagement and I've been charging people a very minuscule $500 a month to be their financial coach. Uh, and I, I put them on a Slack channel. Um, we have calls, uh, we do ad hoc calls and things like that. And the idea is to, gradually, it's a little bit like going to the gym, right? You're not going to go to the gym and put 250 pounds on the, uh, you know, on the bench press and say, all right, you know, let's, let's do this, right? That would be pretty foolish. You're going to start with some very basic stuff and then you're going to work your way up as you start getting into shape, right? The, the, and then the place I start, which almost circles back to the original article that you talked about here, um, where, where it's, it, the first chapter of my book is the psychology of money. So where we have to start is what are your tendencies? How were you impacted and imprinted by your upbringing? And how has that affected you as an adult in terms of how you, how you spend your money, how you invest your money? What's your risk tolerance, right? There's really two goalposts. There's abundance and there's scarcity, right? Um, I grew up for, my mother was a depression baby. So she was the, the poster child for scarcity mindset, right? She just talk about, you know, abject frugality. She would not live up to the level of the money that she had. And she seemed to be perfectly happy with that, although I think there was a little bit of discontent. Um, but she was so scarred by her upbringing in uh, poverty that she could never get around that. Yet, on the on the on the opposite side, she was a stock trader. She was <clears throat> eighty years old and had a ton of money in the stock market. And if you, if I marched her over to a financial, you know, a CFP or financial planner, their jaw would have dropped. They would have said, Mrs. Doss, your risk is, is gargantuan. But to her, it wasn't. And to me, it wasn't either. Right. Has to do. So there's a, there are the contrary forces, super scarcity mindset, yet super high risk tolerance. And some of that might be because she knew how to live in poverty. She wasn't worried about it. You know, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a well-covered territory, right? Yeah. I, I, but that's... she also knew that investing in the market, she was comfortable with it. And she was always brought up with this ethos that you invest in America, you invest in American companies. You don't invest in government debt. Government's not going to do squat for you. But businesses are driven by entrepreneurs like you guys and myself, we are the people who drive this economy. Those are the people that you want to place your bets on. Wow. Um, interesting. But I, I'm, I'm having struggle if she like, grew up with a depression, depression baby, right? Mm -hmm. So very generally, I would think that would be a very risk-adverse person. But you said she right. had all this in there. So yeah. a, a lot of my friends who listen to the show – are very risk adverse. Most of them are. They're they're mm -hmm. they're very uh, they're very worried. And at the same token, they do have some <laughs> FOMO, right? That the fear of sure. missing out. So how do you? I, I guess your coaching maybe is how you balance some of that out. I I I don't I don't know where to where to go with that, quite frankly. So here's where we start. Okay, we, we turn we turn down the noise. I tell the story in my book how I used to listen to, I used to watch CNBC when I was when I was trading. There have been a number of years where I just traded 
the markets. Didn't really work for a living. I just traded the markets because I'm, I'm very good at it and I can trade the markets. Um, and I would, but it's very lonely. So I put on CNBC and I was listening one day and I had a trade going and I listened to this crap that they gave me and I, I didn't close the trade out and I let it ride and it, it reversed on me and I ended up losing money. And that is a cardinal sin as a trader is taking a winning position and turning it into a loser. Just an absolute, it will scar you for life. You don't want to do that. And from that day on, I have never, this is probably 10 years ago, I've never watched CNBC. Hmm. I've never watched any of the financial TV shows. I tell people, turn that noise off because that will impact all sorts of stuff in all sorts of uncertain ways. Find some trusted sources. And I'm actually running that exercise with a new client right now, which is send me the stuff that speaks to you. And he's been sending me some stuff from Motley Fool and a couple of other sources and saying, what do you think? He sent me something from Jim Cramer. I'm not a fan of Jim Cramer at all. Um, I'll just put that out there. Um, but these are voices that people are listening to. And we need to understand how they are impacting your decision making, you know, again, based on your, your tendencies and your risk tolerances. And there's a lot of that in the crypto and the NFT world, right, that we just talked about is there's a lot of voices out there, right? There's a guy sitting in front of a Lamborghini saying, play, you know, use my system and this too can be yours. And my answer is no, <laughs> that's not how it works. Now, so what would you say is the biggest money trap? I mean, I, I don't, it sounds like a loaded well, this, question because there's so we're, many. We're, we're talking about it is that, that, that um, disconnect between what you want and what you are, right? You are, you are pretty much as the father of, you know, three boys who are now all adults, your, your, your personality is pretty much defined by the time you're five years old. Hmm. I can tell that I can say that from experience. I look at my kids and their behaviors and their behaviors are very consistent with how they were at five years old. They pretty much are what they are. You that now that doesn't mean that that's, you're going to be like that your whole life. I mean, again, going back to my mother, she was raised a particular way. The, the, the risk tolerance and all those things, that was a learned behavior. She had to learn that she also had to maybe fight some of the voices in her head that, that were, you know, the little angel and devil or the, the doubts, right? Um, you may have to fight those. And the way that you do that is by checking for evidence, right? If you've ever done cognitive behavior therapy and I'm not a therapist and my contract when you sign with me says I'm not a shrink, right? And if you're in <laughs> trouble, call 911, hire a pro. Um, but there's a huge, huge element to understanding yourself. I had a conference when I was in Bangkok, actually, another time I was in Bangkok for the same conference, a guy buttonholed me and he goes, you're a money guy. Can I buy you dinner? And, uh, and we spent an hour and he bought me dinner and he was talking about his money. Um, so I, I asked him a very simple question. What do you like? What do you like to invest in? He said, I like real estate. I said, then do that. I could teach you the stock market, but if you don't like it, or if you're too scared to put a position on, or if you're too risk averse to, and you're constantly, um, you know, getting stopped out because you put tight stops in because you don't want to lose your principal, that's not going to work. But if you like real estate, go do that. There's tons of money to be made in that. If you like commodities, right? If you like, you know, gold and silver, or if you like currencies, right? Do that. It's pretty pretty simple. Do yeah. stuff you like. Yeah, and I think that I, I, I love we this is you know we kind of came back to your mom right, which I think is great, and I I'm still thinking about something you said earlier in the podcast, and I wrote it down. I have a sharpie that I write on the top of my glass desk all my kind of notes, but this whole mm -hmm. risk tolerance, and you said something that she knows how to live in poverty, like it's such a light bulb moment because you know in full transparency, I've talked about this on the show. I'm very risk adverse um, in the way I've been operating. Um, all my life, right? Just like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I could go into episodes with shrinks to kind of, or, or psychologists mm -hmm. to kind of dig into sure. why that is. But your your mom had the insight 
to to realize, hey, if this doesn't work out, I could always go back to being poor. I, it was just such an enlightening moment. And I'm wondering, have you ever talked to her about that psychology in depth? And do you have a bit of that in you? I do have a bit of that in me. Yeah. No, I, I'm exactly like her. I, I, uh, there isn't a day that goes by where I'm not thinking about money, like all the time, thinking about the markets, right? We're in a, we're in a market decline right now. So, you know, the, uh, and I was just writing about that in my, in my, in my newsletter, the market's down, you know, close to 20%. So I've taken a <laughs> rather significant, um, six figure hit in my portfolio on paper, right? And there's a lot of people who are new to the markets. I mean, there were millions of new accounts that were opened in the pandemic. There was $5 trillion of money printed that's out there in the world, right? So everybody had money and everybody needed a place to put it. And a lot of these people, this is their first experience with a market downturn and it's terrifying, right? And this is actually the word that I used the other day in my, um, in my newsletter was orderly. This has been an orderly downturn. Now, I lived through the crash of 87. I lived through the dot bomb. I lived through the Great Recession. And I look at this and I say, what can I buy? This is like the house is putting the whole world on sale. Even though I've taken a huge hit, my thought is, isn't I got to cut and run? I did a couple transactions on January 3rd waiting for the new tax year. And then my wife and I went to Africa for, for the month of January on a safari. And, and I haven't done a single transaction since I haven't bought or sold anything while this market is declining. Why? Because I don't really know the direction of the market. I don't have a clear, and I'm, I'm a long trader, which means I buy and I hope that it goes up. I'm not a short trader. If I was a short trader and I have friends who are professional traders who are short traders, they're having a, a feeding frenzy. They're making money hand over fest. But I don't, I've traded the short, the short side, but I'm not really doing that. I'm waiting to, using all of my years of experience to find the bottom here and looking at the metrics that I use and the signals that I use for when it's okay to start nibbling back on the upside. Look at a simple example, Apple. Apple is one of those staple stocks, right? I own it. I own quite a bit of it. I have quite a significant profit on this thing. Well, five minutes ago, Apple was trading close to 180. Now it's down to 140 something. What has fundamentally changed with this multi-trillion dollar company over the last four months that would would lead you to believe we should discount it by 40 bucks, right? By tw a solid 25% um, decrease in value. You tell me, because I can't find it. And you know what the answer is? It's perception, it's crowd perception. The crowd is perceiving that it's less valuable, but there's no evidence to back that up. So when you see that, you say to yourself, I should buy this stuff. It's absolutely rock solid. Earnings up the wazoo. I buy it when it's on discount. Right? That's a Warren Buffett approach. And if you follow him and if you've seen that, he's out there, you know, with his wallet wide open looking for stuff to buy. He's no dummy. He's like, you, you want to put the world on discount? I'll have some of that. And this is the thought process that you have to go through, whether you're trading the stock market or anything else, right? Look at what the world, the input that the world is giving you and say to yourself, where, where, where can I make some money? Where are the bargains, right? Um, if you're a trader now, and I'm actually at a point where I'm going to probably go back to doing a little more swing trading and position trading, which is shorter, shorter term trading. And that's because the VIX, the volatility index has popped up over 30. That's good. That's good for traders. If you want to do short term trader, these big swings are great because you can do little scalp trades and make lots of money in the short term. I'm more of a buy and hold guy. Um, and I'm, I'm patient and I'm willing to wait out the market and no one's uh, going to go hungry in my household. 
because I lost a whole bunch of money in the markets. I, I don't have to do anything. I can wait it out. But I'm looking for, I'm, I'm chomping at the bit to get back in and grab some of these bargains. But I don't want to catch a falling knife. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting because I could, I could, I could hear the passion and the knowledge at the same time in, in the way you describe it. And I have a couple other friends that are the same way. When they talk about investing at this level, they're very deep into it, very passionate about it. Um, I, I guess this kind of goes back to the question before that I had it, and it all makes sense. Psychologically, it all makes sense. But for people that are super risk adverse, um, it's hard. How do you build that? that muscle up to get beyond the fear? I guess that's my question because you see it as a buying opportunity. I see it as, I hope it doesn't go down anymore and, 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 and I, I, I want to make sure it goes back up. But really, I should be thinking, man, I want it to go down even further and I'm going to buy even further down. I'm going to double down. But that's the passion you have that I don't have, right? So I'm trying to figure out, and maybe it's the coaching, maybe that's what I have to do, but is there any additional advice that you could give the listeners if they're in that boat of of you know of that fear how do they break through the fear i guess that's the question that i have well you you will you, you will need help not not to not to make my shameless uh, plug for myself but it's it's hard to do alone right it's like it's uh, you know i've had very, i've had lots of coaches over the years i've had therapists i've had all that stuff and a good therapist, a good coach is worth their weight in gold because they will allow you to see what it is that you can't see. And you can't use spouses and friends and stuff because let's face it, they have their own agenda, right? One of the reasons that I, my mother was able to change her approach was my father. My father didn't grow up in scarcity. My father actually grew up with money. Um, and he always believed in... Uh, having minimal debt and investing in companies. So that learned behavior came from her spouse, right? That is the, the, the most influential relationship that you will ever have is the person that you you're sleeping with, right? Um, you got to understand their tendencies as well. Right. Because if they're in the scarcity world as well as you are now, now you're now you're doing double duty. Right. So yeah. that could just reinforce the same ideas that you have. And there's also that that sort of subtext of that, which is, well, I don't want to take any risk because my wife is risk averse. And if it blows up, she's never going to let me forget about it. Right. We've all had that conversation in our head. I'm married 31 years. Right. Women have long memories. They will remember a slight from 1987 in vivid detail, and they will pull it out when they need it, right? <laughs> it's like a little little dagger that they got, and they're just waiting for you to bring it back. And I know it's horribly sexist, and it's not me too, and I'll get canceled for saying that stuff. But yet your listeners are like, yeah, that's happened to me more times than I can remember. So that plays into it as well. You're not living in a plastic bubble here doing this trading um, or investing or whatever. And you don't want to get so crazy that you're crowing from the rooftops when you hit it big, because then you're going to have to cry in your beer when, when it, the markets go against you. And they will. Every trader, even Warren Buffett talks about how, and I wrote about it in my book, his company's called Ber Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway was a... Um, uh, was like a textile company that was the first company that he bought. And he named his, his, he named his holding company after that. And he admits it was the worst investment that I ever made, right? Mm -hmm. 20 years I tried to, to turn, turn that company around and make money, and I never did, right? He knows it in vivid detail. You remember the beats. That $500 bad beat that I took on that CNBC trade, that's vivid in my mind, right? The 100 grand I made trading some other stock, I couldn't even name the stock because I've forgotten what it is. That's, you know, now we're back to, now we're in that pleasure pain principle, right? Right. It takes a, a gram, it takes a, a, a kilo of pleasure to equal a gram of pain. Another aspect of the psychology that you have to overcome. It's tough. It's very tough. Yeah. Well, the body's wired to remember the pain. So don't do that again. Right. Well, that's the idea that the, 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 the brain is plastic and can, 
do a really good job on forgetting trauma. But like you said, the body, there's a book called the body keeps the score. And I learned that in my, in my, you know, my therapy work, the central nervous system remembers everything. So even though you're, you've checked for evidence using your executive function, your body's screaming at you that says, no, that's bad. Don't do that. Right. Don't touch that hot stove. Bad. Bad. Very bad. (laughs) So, you know, you, you were talking about your mom, how, you know, her ethos was around investing in entrepreneurs in the U.S. You yourself have been uh, done multiple businesses and been an entrepreneur. What would you say the main obstacle a new entrepreneur faces? Oh, well, I've done, a, you know, obviously a huge amount of entrepreneurial coaching. Um, I don't really sell a system. I, I do what I call bespoke, you know, custom coaching. But again, the idea is... We're going to spend the first couple of months understanding sort of why you started this business, what your goals were. And it's astonishing sometimes how little thought people gave to why they were getting into the business. I call that an accidental business, right? And my first business uh, in the IT was an accidental business. A friend of mine said, I need a bunch of Macs. This is going back to the 80s and I can't source them. And I said, let me take a crack at it. And I did. And I made a couple of bucks. And then you kept feeding me deals. And before you know it, um, I'm in the IT business. And then I quit my day job and the rest, as they say, is history. Um, but I never really did an analysis of, of why. I just wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then I got in and started doing it and, and started to discover that, there, that there's so much that I don't know. And, and I, that's when I hired my first entrepreneurial coach which was, again, to use that mirror to look at my tendencies um, in how I ran the business um, and and to really start to uh, illuminate the, the blind spots. Because those are the things that will that'll kill your business, is what is it that I can't see? I'm so busy working in the business that I have no time to work on the business, right? That's the Michael Gerber, if anybody's read the, the E-Myth, it's a a really, really um, uh, astute book about starting up an entrepreneurship. Um, but I, and I tell people, surround yourself with smart people. As Bill Gates says, you want to find people that are smarter than you to surround yourself with, right? Uh, and that's really, really important. When now, why smarter people would want to hang out with you, the dummy? That's a story. That's a question I don't have the answer for. Uh, but yes, you do want to find people, and you want to try to find people that, again, don't have an agenda. As a coach, I don't have an agenda other than your maximum success. And I say that with the greatest sincerity, right? Because if I do solid for you, I never have to spend a nickel for marketing. You're just going to refer me. They're going to say, Henry, change my life. That's, that's huge. I mean, that's the Holy grail. Because go ahead. Sorry. Oh no. Um, I should have let you finish. Um, the, the, the question that I had, which kind of ties to this is how do you find that passion? So, you know, in terms of, uh, entrepreneurship, I think there are a lot of people out there that have the thoughts that they want to be an entrepreneur. And to your point, um, they don't, they only think about kind of the tip of the iceberg. They don't think about underneath. They don't focus. They don't really think about how I'm going to run the business. They think about just doing what's inside the business. But like, how do you figure out what that is, whether it's, you know, real estate or it is opening up a storefront or a virtual store, whatever that is, is there, is there any, any thoughts that you have in terms of how do you figure out what that passion is and then running with it, you know, as a business? Well, it's interesting. I wrote a little thing. It's on my, it's a freebie. It's like a 25 page PDF that you can download on my, on my website. If you go to, you know, DAS knowledge, D-A-A-S knowledge. Um, it's called five reasons small businesses fail. Not a great title. I should have made a more positive title, but that's, that's the title. And the fifth thing is to touch on your point, Paul, is confusing passion with commitment, Right. Well, go back to the dating analogy, right? We've all been passionate about people that we've met and had early stage relationships with. But then over the course of time, something changed or something fizzled, and that's not who you ended up marrying. You married the person that not only did you start out with passion because passion fades, but you were committed 
to the relationship. So passion is sort of like the hook, but then commitment is the five hours it takes to reel it in. And a lot of people will quit when that comes. They just will. They'll give up. They'll, they'll, they'll cut bait. They'll cut the line. Right? We see that all the time, whether it be in personal relationships or businesses or anything. Right? Commitment is the number one key. So even if you love this thing, right? Like I got baseball cards up here on the wall behind me and I love baseball cards. Right? I could start a baseball card business if I wanted to, but I'm smart enough to know that I don't want to, right? Because I'm passionate passionate about it as a hobbyist because it's fun and I don't want to turn it into work. I just don't because you're going to end up having to slog through it every single day. And in a business like that, which is, which has had a heyday recently. I mean, the price of cards has gone. What's behind me is probably worth at least 10 grand. My Roberto Clemente cards, um, probably even more the way that it's, that it's gone up. Um, but I don't want to be in the business of, of trading that yet. There are other people who, who are like, no, I'm, I'm not so passionate about it as a collector. I, I like it as a, you know, as a kind of a fungible token. It's a piece of cardboard. It's no dumber than an NFT. Let's just call it, let's just call it what it is. It's a little piece of cardboard that came with bubble gum, right? I bought the cards when I was a kid for the bubble gum. The cards were an afterthought. And now, you know, those were professionally slabbed, you know, at $10 a piece. Just the fact that such a business exists is silly. Somebody graded that with a microscope. I mean, that's, that's just goofy. But for some people, that's like, no, I dig that. I, I love those various elements of it, right? Then you may say to yourself, I've got the kernel of a business. But then you got to stop and say to yourself, can I make money with this, right? Two things you got to know, right? This, this Somebody, a coach taught me this 25 years ago. If you're analyzing any business, two things, cash flow, gross margin, Right. It's the only two things you need to know whether a business is viable. If you can master those two things, then you have the potential to have a money making business. But if neither but if either one of those don't work, you shouldn't even waste your time. I'll stop there. Wow. Um we, we we're going on and on. We could probably go on a lot longer here. So, <laughs> so thank you, Henry. Uh, so I got to play next... golf in a little bit. So we'll okay, all right. So we'll let you go. Cut it short. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I have a last one, but it last two. But I'll make them one. How's that? There we are. All right. So, what is your biggest financial mistake that you've made? And then the opposite sort of end of that is: what's is the single best piece of advice you have received? The biggest mistake and best piece of advice. Uh, The biggest mistake I made, um, uh, I wrote about in my book. Um, I won't go into all the gross details. You can download my book for free. If you just, you can just go to Henry Doss, my, my personal site and right on the splash page, there's a little link that allows you to download the book for free because, because the dirty little secret in the publishing world is the only one who makes any money is Bezos. Right. Um, so I'm happy to give it away for free because it's, a, again, it's a, it, it's a lead magnet. Um, I'm sorry, repeat the question again. Yeah, sure. I got all fouled up in my brain. <laughs> What's the <laughs> biggest financial mistake you made ah. and the best piece of advice? And the best piece of advice. So in that book, I talked about a real estate deal that I did with a guy. I called him Bob. It's not his real name. And uh, we were doing you know, multi-million dollar spec houses back, you know, 15 years ago. And he jumped off a bridge on purpose to self-terminate. That's horrible, just horrible. And I had thought I had insulated myself from the writ from risk, but I hadn't. And I went through pretty much three years of, of hell getting sued by tons of people and getting dragged into court and foreclosure and this, that, and the other thing. Um, as it turned out it, from a monetary standpoint, <clears throat> it only cost me five grand to hire a lawyer and I got to get out of jail free card. Um, I won't bore you with the circumstances as to why, but basically it was in the middle of the the meltdown of the, the Great Recession. 
and there was a lot of antipathy towards banks. And the judge basically decided what I call the greater asshole theory. It's who was the bigger asshole, uh, the bank for loaning us the money or us for taking it. Hmm. And he decided it was the bank. They should have known better. Uh, so that was a huge, it wasn't a, it wasn't a financial mistake, but emotionally it knocked the crap out of me. It really did. And if anybody who's been on that side of it, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Um, greatest, and then the greatest piece of uh, financial advice or, or just sort of general investing advice is again, I'll go circle back to the whole um, invest in what you know, but I'll, I'll take it one step further. It's, it's more of, viewing the world around you. Um, so for instance, <clears throat> I just flew out to Salt Lake City where my youngest son goes to school. Uh, it's a crazy story, but I, I drove home. I stopped in Chicago. I actually traded in my vehicle for another vehicle and I drove the new vehicle home because there's a car that I wanted to buy. And um, we did all that. And I've done lots of road trips. I've done that, that drive. It's 2,200 miles. I've done it at least four times. <laughs> And one of the things I noticed on coming back was I stopped in Nebraska, uh, Iowa, and Indiana. And generally, we'll drive to a place, and then we'll just find a hotel. And I like Hilton. And so I go, I go to the hotel. I walk up to the front desk. They said, I'm in the middle of Nebraska, middle of nowhere. And they said, I'm sorry, we're full. That happened to me twice on this trip. And that has never happened to me. And I've traveled all over the world and all sorts of different places. And that's, I make a note of that. I was like, that's really interesting, right? We're in this whole 20% decline pandemic. I just had COVID a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, the, the, the boils and sores, the world's gone crazy. It's, it's biblical. And yet I'm in the middle of nowhere and the hotel is full. What? What do you intuit from that? Twice it happened. Well, people are traveling, right? Yeah. People are traveling. People are spending money. Go to restaurants, right? So you wonder why there's inflation. Well, we printed $5 trillion worth of money. You you know as well as I do that eventually that's all going to end up in the 0.001% pockets. But while it's out in the wild, it's in people and people don't know what to do with it. So they're bidding up houses. They're bidding up used cars, right? I know just having bought a used car, um, they're dying for your inventory. We can't sell what we don't have. And they're selling what they are selling. They're selling for top dollar, right? So you have to take all of this disparate data, all these, all these counterintuitive things or these clashing forces. Let's see, market's down 20%, yet I'm on the road and the hotels are full, which means people are out of the house and they're spending money. Inflation's... 8%, right? You'd think people would be tightening their belt. Their money's worth less. Yet there's a line out the door at my local ice cream shop over here, literally out the door and around the block. These are the things that as, a, as an investor or just as a human being, you have to recognize. Yet I'm in the middle of Nebraska and I walk down the street and half of the buildings or are, are have for rent or are just boarded up right so what again there's another data point is that does that tell me that amazon truly has ruled the world and that everything's gone online i should be shorting shorting the brick and mortar retailers and and going long on amazon and the other you know the other tech tech purveyors you got to take all of that data when you're figuring out where you're going to invest your money some of it very contradictory and then filter out to some sort of conclusions that decide you which, which horses am I going to back and which ones am I going to short? And that's a lot of work. A lot of people don't want to do it. They want to buy a, uh, they want to buy an index fund. They want to robo invest and they want to wall themselves off for that. And that's great until the market goes down 20% and your S and P index fund is now in the toilet and you're saying, why did I do that? Hmm. Yeah, no, that, that very good um, answer to those two questions. So thank, <laughs> thank you, you for that, Henry. We really appreciate it. And with that, we'll, we'll go into the summary recap. And I think we usually just take away what I took away, then 
Paul takes away, and then you give us you you have the last word with plugs or any final words you want to give to the audience. But for me, um, up front, it was your unintended writing advice um, because I I think I've talked about this on a number of podcasts. I am I've written I have raw material for a book. I have over four hundred pages written. And now I'm trying to bring it home, and it's very hard to bring it home in, for me. So uh, some of the advice you gave up front, uh, unintended, I'm going to kind of mm-hmm. take in. Um, the vicarious learning about topics, I thought that was interesting. So, you know, if you don't know something, but if you're close enough to it for a while, you start to pick up the lingo, the, the nomenclature, all those different things. You start to understand it much better. And, and that I have examples in my head where that comes into play. So that was great highlighting that. Um, avoiding the, the FOMO and then also um, the 100-hour week, 35-hour TV type statement just kind of resonated with me as well. So with that, I'll, I'll hand it to Paul and then we'll hand it to you, Henry, for the last word. Yeah. So again, not, not surprising. Some of mine are the same, uh, you know, invest in what you know, the hundred hour a week or 168 hour a week, however you want to look at it, you know, the trusted sources, there's so much noise out there. You know, you, you got to find the right trusted sources. Uh, that's something I'm personally struggling with trying to find what and where. And in fact, I hate watching the news at all. Now it just frustrates me. So I'm always looking for a better source. Um, there's one, one other one here, maybe two, uh, confusing passion with commitment, and especially on the entrepreneur side, having started a few businesses and things like that. And the commitment to continue to follow through that's, uh, that's something. And then the simplest one, of course, cash flow, gross margins, right? You know, very simple. Yeah. If you're making money and there's a margin, okay, you have something, but are you now are you committed to continue to see it through. Yep. So. And, and Henry, with that, thanks, Paul. And Henry, with that, we'll let you have, you know, where can people find you? How can they get to you? And also any final words for the audience? Well, before I do that, your, your 400 page that you've already written. Yes. There's, there's a relatively easy solution to that. Hire a copy editor and you can go to the Editorial Freelancers Association, which is where I found my copy editor and my my uh, InDesign person who laid out my book and interview some people. You could, you could hand that to somebody and say, turn this into a book for me Hmm. and they could do it. You might be too close to it, but they could go through it and rejigger it. It probably wouldn't be 400 pages. They would cut a lot out. Right. Uh, Which is fine. And they could take someone else could probably take all that raw material, craft it into a really nice manuscript, maybe with a few holes in it and said, you need to write something here and you'd get to market. Not only that, um, by making a financial commitment, which is something that we hadn't talked about. um, But I'll I'll say this now, um, you know, for my entrepreneurial coaching, I charge twenty five hundred dollars a month. And I tell people flat out that 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 spend is for your benefit, not for mine. And they're like, how on earth is that the case? I said, because if you spend 2,500 bucks a month and you don't get value out of it, then you're the schmuck, not me. It's not going to change my life, not to be cavalier about it. It's not it's not going to make a whole lot of difference in my life, but it will make a difference in your life, right? Think about any time you've gone out and sought free resources from somebody. Oh, I'll get it for free. It's usually garbage, Right. Because there's no skin in the game. As soon as you put skin in the game, though, it makes it serious, just like investing. You could paper trade till you're blue in the face. But the first time you put 10 grand on a stock, you are going to watch that like a hawk. You just are. So remember that, right? At least if you're a red-blooded American, and that's how Americans operate. Um, That's my last little parting shot there. As far as me, um, I have two websites. I mentioned them earlier. HenryDoss.com, which is like has everything, including my baseball card collection and pictures from my my trip to Kenya and all the stupid stuff, as well as my my you know screen. You can write, read the first ten pages of a bunch of my screenplays. I have all that, and then my business site is DossKnowledge.com. There's a whole you can download my book for free. There's a bunch of trip wires. There's a money mindset quiz. It's all you know free stuff that I give away. Um, and then you can sign up with a strategy session and we can talk. It doesn't cost anything for a strategy session. And, and that's how I get business. Oh, very cool. 
Thank you, Henry. Super enlightening. This is one of those podcasts, like I said earlier, um, I will be listening intently either on a run or at the gym. That's where I listen to all my <laughs> podcasts. Um, but I will be listening to it uh, probably several times. So thank you for this. We really appreciate your time today, and, and, and good luck with the golf game today. We want to get it before the weather breaks. I understand that commitment, so we'll get you out the I door am, in, a, I in, a, in a minute to, or so. To, to my golf game, although I'm playing with all three of my boys, so it's, ah, it's going to be. That's so cool. Yeah. All of them are here. to, to pl- They all live – they're all in town to play. No, they, they all just happen to be here. Uh, um, one of them – one my middle son lives with us. But um, my oldest lives in Manhattan, and the other one's in college. So they all happen to be here this weekend. So we're going to play a little, a little foursome today. It's going to be interesting to listen to them whine about their game. So I might have to, <laughs> I might have to keep my headphones on. <laughs> well, well, with that, we'll get you out in the next thirty seconds. Uh, we have a favor we'd like to ask our listeners: please go to YouTube and search for Financial Dads, and please subscribe to our channel. We would really appreciate it. Uh, Well, Paul and Henry, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Thanks, everyone, for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul and Paul reminding you managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the Financial Dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you. (laughs) 